Please be seated. There are two kinds of spiritual disciplines. And tonight I want to talk about the kind that we understand less and struggle with more. The first kind of spiritual disciplines are the ones we choose. And these are the ones that most people think of when it comes to Ash Wednesday and Lent. In the past few days, you may have heard somebody say, I'm giving up chocolate for Lent, or I'm giving up coffee, or that's nothing, I'm giving up Facebook plus Instagram plus X. Now, we understand these kind of disciplines. They're the ones that Jesus uh, speaks of in tonight's gospel reading where he says, when you give to people in need, when you pray, when you fast, he assumes that you and I will choose to do these things. That as a follower of Christ, it'll become a part of our lives in different rhythms and different seasons of our lives, but that we will choose spiritual disciplines like this. And he makes this one big point. When we do them, we must never do them to try to prove to God or to somebody else or ourselves how spiritual we are. No, we do it for one reason. You and I have a heavenly father who rewards and he is waiting to reward you with the intimacy of his presence. And those help make it possible. Now, as hard as those disciplines are though, most Christians, I would say, uh, would tell, say they're not as hard as the ones you didn't choose. Many things in life meet that qualification. But I want to talk about this specifically. Jesus says, okay, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, a customary discipline that you would choose to do, and you suddenly remember that somebody has something against you, meaning you hurt this person, and it's never been worked out, then leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and get reconciled to that person, then come back. First, take care of the relational breakdown. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying the unwanted discipline of going to somebody and asking for their forgiveness, which we did not choose and we don't like, comes before the religious discipline that we do choose. Now, we don't, we don't like this. Nobody says for Lent, this year for Lent, I'm going to work on forgiving that person who still has no clue how much they hurt me. Nobody says, I'm going to spend this Lent owning up to my own stuff and do the hard work of confessing that to the person that I injured. But it's exactly here in the discipline that we don't choose that we may grow most of all. I, I really believe as a pastor that some of you, this Lent could be a remarkable time of spiritual growth for you as you deal with a conflict with another person. I mean, it does us no good to give up candy if what we really need to give up is contempt. So let me ask you, are you dealing with a difficult relationship right now? A conflict between you and someone else, an injury unresolved, a situation needing to be addressed? 
and maybe a follow-on question, if you are, is it with another Christian? It often is, and this often surprises us and takes us by, you know, kind of surprise. I know when I became a Christian, I truly thought it was sitting around with guitars playing, you know, singing songs. This is a date, this will date me, but pass it on. Okay. <laughs> and, and because that's all I'd seen Christians do. I had no idea that to be a Christian means you deal with conflict automatically and often. I went through each New Testament book and in every one, so far as I could tell, there's either a direct or implied conflict between believers. Sometimes it's very necessary because there's conflict legitimate over doctrine or whatever, but it's part of living in community. And so working on that becomes a spiritual discipline for every one of us in every season of our life, whether we chose it or not. Years ago, a church I was in was having some conflict, mostly between the leaders and much of it not known to those of us in the pews like me. It got to a point, though, that a couple vestry members resigned. So now it was public that something unhappy was going on. And I was invited to serve one of the resigning in protest vestry members' seat. And like a dummy, I said yes. <laughs> and they very quickly said, why don't you be the warden? And like a week or two after that, they said, oh, well, that means you're going to stand up at a service and on behalf of the entire vestry, speak up, make a public statement to the church about what is really causing this conflict. Well, I really knew nothing much about it. I didn't. But they handed me the thing and the statement and it kind of laid out the, the situation. And so I stood up and the essence of the uh, statement was that this one particular person, I'll call him Raj, was really responsible for just about all of it. And I didn't know the backstory, but that's what I did. Now, can anyone else see some massive problems at this moment? <laughs> well, I didn't. <laughs> and of course, my statement just made the conflict worse. Because it turns out that what I'd been told was the truth was actually one side slanted version of the truth that laid way too much on the back of this poor guy named Raj and didn't take responsibility for some deep, significant issues in the church. Well, I got to tell you, it took me a lot of internal wrestling to finally walk over and pick up my phone and, and call Raj. And to tell him, you know what? I said things in public about you that I had never fact-checked. I didn't call you. That was foolish, and I ended up slandering you, and I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And he didn't say, oh, there, there, Kevin. We all make mistakes. There was a long pause, and then he said, that really hurt. But he did forgive me. And I grew that day. I learned a lesson I needed to learn. Well, friends, for Lent, I would much rather go on a retreat or read a devotional guide, then have that conversation like I had with Raj. But that is the discipline we must all practice.
So in the time I have left, I just want to help you with this discipline from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And let me offer three questions that I hope will help you. Now imagine one Saturday night, we're all here in worship, and in my sermon, I say, uh, I appeal to you, Mike Howard, and I appeal to you, John Rakes, settle your disagreement. Now you all would be a little startled. You'd be a little freaked out. Most of all, John <laughs> and Mike. <laughs> and by the way, I, I just chose them because I knew they wouldn't mind, I don't think. <laughs> okay, I can go and apologize. But, uh, <laughs> but that moment, so awkward, is exactly what happens in an early Christian church in the Greek city of Philippi. Paul has sent the people there a letter, and like all his letters, they're to be read out loud to the entire church. And toward the end of the letter, he says, I appeal to Euodia, I appeal to Syntyche, like, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Now, this is awkward. It's not usual for Paul to do this. Why would he name these two publicly? Well, the answer is because their conflict is now affecting the entire church. That's why he does it. People are now taking sides. People are starting to use words like us and them, right? And it's starting to shake the faith of some of the young believers in the church. Like there's the local uh, prison guard who goes to the church now there, and he and all of his family were baptized by Paul and Silas late one night had a miraculous turn to Jesus Christ. They've never seen this before. It is shaking their faith. And it's gotten so bad, apparently, that somebody wrote to Paul and said, Paul, you've got to, like, fix this. You've got to intervene. Now, what do we know? We know the conflict is between leaders, these two women who have worked very hard with Paul. They've done mission work with him. They've done evangelism with him. And since Paul names both of them, he apparently thinks they both contributed to what's going on right now. That's not always the case, right? Sometimes there's a person, and it's not a disagreement. They are theologically in error and need some correction for their good and for the good of the church. Or maybe somebody's really morally acted out, unrepentant. Well, then, that's not a, like a disagreement, right? I mean, that's two-sided. It's, it's more of a person needs some correction and some extra pastoral care, possibly discipline, depending on the situation. But anyway, all that to say, in the situation Paul calls out here, the relationship is broken down on both sides. Maybe Euodia and Syntyche fell out over which of a, who is closer to Paul? Maybe it's like, who works harder? Maybe who gets the credit and who should? Who leads our projects and who should? Maybe Euodia is more mercy-oriented. She's like an Enneagram 2, and she's, you know, uh, and Syntyche is like an Enneagram 8, more direct, high expectations. So the one thinks the other is a softie who can't tell anybody the truth, and the other one thinks the other person is, is hard-nosed and, you know, really is unkind. But their disagreement has continued, it's spread into the church, and each one apparently thinks that only happens when each person thinks the other person is the problem, that it's their fault. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you both got to come to the table. 
You've both got to own something. You've both got to work on it. So let me ask you question number one. In whatever conflict it is that you're facing, are you waiting for this other person to finally realize what they did and come and apologize to you? Just speaking from my experience, you may be waiting a very, very long time. They're probably not gonna. So if you have enough vision to see that even 1% of this was uh, made worse or whatever by you, then you make the first move. If you can possibly talk with them, do that. Now, I do know some people are not able or willing to do that. Then you have to work on forgiving. You have to say, I'm going to enter the forgiveness process, and I'll stay in it until I get through it, which involves repeated choices over time. So that's question number one. Am I waiting on them, or am I working on me? Now for question two. Notice that Paul doesn't leave these two leaders on their own. He knows how stuck we get with these conflicts. So he says, I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women. Now, most likely, when he says, my true partner, everybody would know who that was. He's talking about Luke, his doctor, and his good friend, who stays in Philippi and was probably there right then. If so, Paul's saying to Luke, would you help mediate this thing? Would you get Yodian and Syntyche to sit down together and, and you as a wiser, you know, maybe more mature believer can help them sort this and talk to each other because they're not able to right now. So question number two is, does your disagreement or whatever you're working through, does it need a mediator? Oftentimes they do. Sometimes Karen and I have mediated sometimes we're not the right person for that sometimes a therapist is i mean and if it's really intense sometimes you need court appointed or whatever but you need somebody you both can trust to sort out what you haven't been able to on your own and finally question number three what attitude are you going in with the whole letter of philippians has been about this chapter two verse three be humble thinking of others as better than yourself. Well, guess what? When somebody has hurt us, we don't think they're better than us. We think we're better than them. And maybe in this particular instance, that is true. We may have contributed less. But here's the thing. We don't need God any less than they do. They're a hurting person who is capable of hurting others. They just showed that. You know what? I'm a hurting person capable of hurting others. And it is so hard to say, why do I have to let that per why do I have to work to forgive that person? Given all they did. There's no logic. We do it with God's help and only because of him. Paul says you should have the attitude Jesus did. He didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. He gave up his divine privileges and he took on the position of a slave. Slaves don't go in and demand. Slaves can ask though. A few months ago, I told the story of visiting Spencer Perkins, son of civil rights leader John Perkins, and how he had formed an interracial community with 
Chris Rice, and who called himself a Connecticut Yankee, and how being there and seeing this kind of community, they, they lived in the same home, to me it was like a sign of heaven. Well, it turns out that heaven takes a lot of hard work on earth. <laughs> right? Shortly before he died, Spencer died early at 44, but shortly before he died, like the week before, he was speaking at a conference, and here's what he said. He said, for more than 10 years, Chris Rice, my white ministry partner, and I have preached the importance of relationships in achieving racial reconciliation. But this past summer, Chris and I had come to what seemed like insurmountable obstacles in our relationship. By summer's end, both of us held tightly to a long mental list of ways that each of us had hurt or disappointed the other. We were close to settling for irreconcilable differences and going our separate ways. But in order to demonstrate that we were good Christian boys, we sought the counsel of some dear friends, John and Judy Alexander. Notice they brought in a, a mediator. And it's funny what Spencer uh, says about that. He says, in my mind, we were just going through the motions. The damage was already done, and the pain was too great. When we sat down with John and Judy, they began rambling about grace. I thought, yeah, yeah, I know all about grace. I could quote John 3.16 when I was knee-high to a duck. <laughs> that great Mississippi phrase. <laughs> Uh, grace is God's love demonstrated to us, even though we don't deserve it. But in all my 43 years of evangelical teaching, I never understood until then that grace was something God wanted to be a way of life for us as his followers. It was much easier for me to, to, to swallow the lofty, untested notion of dying for each other than simply giving grace to brothers and sisters on a daily basis. That is hard. And to do it the way God gives us grace. He says that our relationship's weakest moment, Chris and I saw as clearly as we'd ever seen anything, that only by giving each other grace could we find healing and restoration. We could either hold on to our grievances and demand that all our hurts be redressed or we could follow God's example, give each other grace, and trust God when we lacked the ability on our own to forgive. And Spencer concludes and he says, we chose grace. This Lent, will you choose grace? Will I? Amen.